Today's message is titled, Death Died on the Cross of Jesus Christ. Let me begin by saying that we are surrounded by symbols and symbolism. Some trademarks like the Nike swoosh or Mickey's ears or the Chevy bow tie, McDonald's golden arches, and, and so many more all around us. They're all designed to draw us in uh, and actually to get us to, to buy something as we feel connected to that symbol. And then there are symbols all around us that aren't corporate in nature. There's the public domain stuff like the, what I call the bathroom buddies of the restrooms, the two folks that show us where we need to, to go. There's the crosswalk symbol that we see all over the city. There's the underground parking exit signs, the elevator this way signs, and, and, and symbols like that all over the place that we see. Uh, those symbols are more about trying to draw us somewhere. They, they give us a sense of where we need to go or, or where we need to get to. But again, all around us, we're surrounded by symbols and by symbolism. If I was to ask you to think about what is the symbol or the logo of the Christian faith, what would you say? Uh, I think most people would fire off pretty much right away. It's the cross, right? By a mile, I would say people would, would come to that symbol as the representative of the church uh, on top of every steeple uh, around the neck of so many people. Uh, even on the skin of some of us, we have a cross and it's there because it represents to us the Christian faith, the symbol of our faith. But it wasn't the case always. Let me just give you a bit of a quick history lesson. Uh, in the very beginning, the most predominant symbol of the Christian faith was a fish. Now, you might be asking the question, why would it be a fish? Well, it's not because of that famous verse where Jesus called his first followers, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's not the reason. The, the real reason why it was a fish was because primarily in the first century, the church was so badly persecuted. Every, every follower of Christ was in danger by the state. And so they needed a bit of a covert signal that they could give each other to identify each other. And so what would happen oftentimes is one person in the sand maybe would kick off their sandal and, and they would draw the bottom half of a fish. The other person, if they were a follower of Christ as well, would complete the fish and, and they, would, they would fire that off. And that was the symbol of, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, are you? Uh, you might wonder, why a fish? Well, here's why. Uh, the Greek word for fish is spelt ichthus. And if you take the letters of ichthus and you, you make an acronym out of them, you come up with Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so that's why they used the fish, because it represented these major pieces of the identity of who Jesus Christ is and was. And in an amazing way, it actually gives us a pretty complete gospel message, just those five words, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Uh, but then the persecution faded, uh, and by the middle of the second century, Christianity actually became pretty popular. It actually became the state religion in a lot of places. And so the persecution really subsided and the need to be so covert dropped right off. And so the cross became the logo, the symbol of the church. And, and let me just say that it's the right one. It, it is the right 
logo. It's the right symbol that captures the essence of who we are as the followers of Christ. But why? Why the cross? Why would any faith movement want an instrument of Roman torture and death to be the symbol of their faith, of their religion? You see, in our culture, people throw it up. If you talk about the cross to a lot of folks, they'll say, well, it kind of means peace and it means sort of love and, and all that kind of thing. And, and let me just say this, that if, if you embrace the cross rightly, it does lead to peace and it does, does lead to love and all those kind of things. But that's not what the symbol means. You see, Romans killed their worst criminals and the, and the greatest opposition on a tall post with a crossbar on it and they drove a nail through their ankles and they drove a nail through their wrists and and then they they hung them out for all to see and, and they waited for them to die and i don't mean to be overly graphic but their lungs would fill up with water and eventually they would suffocate in their own lungs that's what the cross really was in fact it's a horrible symbol it's an awful awful terrible symbol but and there's just such a key that it's actually the, the, the heart of the cross, the crucifixion specifically of Jesus Christ, is in fact the central event in all of human history. Now, if the cross is embraced and understood, and, and, and if you come to it and really receive it, let me just say that, that it actually is the thing that changes absolutely everything. It's the pivot point for all of human history. And, and so what I'd like to do with you for the next little while is just talk a little bit about why. Why the cross? What happens on the cross that makes it what it is? And how does it do that? And then how can I access that for myself? That, that's where I want to take you for a little while. But to get that, to understand that, we've got to go all the way back to the very beginning. Got to head back to the book of Genesis in the Bible, the first book, and chapters 2 and 3. We might... We might refer to that as our origin story if you're into superheroes and stuff. But back in Genesis 2 and 3, we go to something that we refer to in the church as the fall. And, and we see something that took place that, that the cross dealt with. But to understand the cross, we have to understand what happened. And so I just want to spend a few minutes with you unpacking some of what went on. For some of you, this is going to be a refresher. For some of you, this is brand new. But let me just walk you through it real quick. If you go to Genesis 2 and 3, and I really encourage you to read that whole that whole section of creation on your own. But here's what happens in a really fast way. God creates all things. He creates humans, Adam and Eve. Uh, he places them in this beautiful garden in the very center of all of creation. And God lives with them there in perfect communion. Uh, they have perfect fellowship with God. He walks with them, the Bible says, in the cool of the day. Can you imagine going for a walk and God just comes along with you? They had perfect communion with each other, no conflict. They just had unity together and it would have been amazing. He puts them in that place. He puts them there with him and with each other. And, and the Bible says that he puts them over all things. They are the keepers of the garden. They are the keepers of the zoo. They are the keepers of all these things. And they have complete free range in that place and in that space. But there's one, there's one prohibition. 
There, there's one limitation and only one. The Bible says that they are not allowed to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now you may read that, especially if you're new to all this, and, and you may think, what's the big deal? It's a tree. It's a piece of fruit. What's so wrong with that? Well, here's the idea. Uh, the idea is that they would come to experientially know the difference between good and evil. They would come to experience what evil actually is, not just a head knowledge, but a practical knowledge. And, and you get this, right? To know experientially what something is, to know it is to do it. And so they would need to actually rebel. They would need to actually go against what God had said. They would actually have to do that which was evil in order to experience, to know what was evil. You can't really know it otherwise. They already had the knowledge of good. They knew what that was. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They saw him. They knew him. They knew each other. But for them to know what evil was would be to do it. And so they did it. And, and let me just say this, that God wasn't keeping them from something good. That was the, what the tempter threw at them. God's holding something back from you. Not at all. He was keeping them from something really bad. But they were tempted, if you know the story, and they chose to defy God for the sake of knowing evil and, and what we call sin enters in. Uh, and carrying on from that theme, the Bible teaches us and tells us that the penalty for sin is death. In that same passage in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, God says to them, you shall not eat of this tree, you shall not take this knowledge for yourself, but on the day that you do, you will surely die. That's Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Paul, the apostle, the great apostle says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve, as a result of their rebellion, became sinners and the inevitable consequence of sin is death. Let me just unpack that real quick with you. It's not some sort of random thing. It's not an arbitrary, arbitrary thing. It's, it's not something God just came up with sort of randomly. No, it's, it's the unavoidable consequence of sin. Sin is kind of like rust or like corrosion. When it gets into something, it goes all the way through it and destroys everything it touches. Uh, once it enters in, it cannot do anything other than destroy. And that's what, that's what sin does. It destroys everything it touches. It, maybe it's like poison that you put a little bit of into a bottle of liquid. That poison is going to permeate all through that bottle. It's going to touch everything. It's going to bring destruction then to everything it touches. Uh, and we could, we could just pepper you with ideas. Maybe it's like the yeast that works through the whole batch of dough. You get the idea, I trust. It's, it's not just a thing that God decided because he was some sort of big meanie. It's the reality of sin when it is in, it permeates and it destroys. And ultimately it leads to death. It's a cause and effect and it affected everything. Death comes to all that sin touches. And it comes in three ways. Uh, the first way is a death that is the separation between God 
and humanity. So right away, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they hide from God, the Bible tells us. They hide behind a tree when they hear him coming. Sin causes separation. Uh, and, and then later in the story, the Bible tells us that God removes them from the garden. Uh, he places them outside of that intimate space with him. They can no longer be in the intimate presence of God. And again, it's not because God is sort of mean and angry, but it's because impurity cannot dwell together with that which is perfectly pure. If you look in the Bible a little further, you'll see encounters where people like Abraham and Moses and Isaiah encountered some degree of the presence of the holy God. And in every case, the awesomeness of God was overwhelming. That sinful man cannot live in a face-to-face place with God. And here's why. That the holiness of God cannot do anything other than destroy the sin that's around. And maybe the best illustration I can give would be the concept of impurity in gold. If you take some gold and you throw it into a pot and you heat up the, the furnace, the impurity is all going to boil and burn off. It cannot do otherwise. The hotter the fire, the more the impurity burns off. So humanity is by necessity cut off from God's presence because of the impurity of sin. It means that we cannot get close to God anymore. Uh, His holiness would burn off all of the impurity, all of the sin. And the sad reality is that sin runs all the way through us. And so therefore, it wouldn't be a good outcome to be near to a holy God if that sin was still fully alive within us. And can I just say this today? Isn't it true that all of us have experienced that death? that separation. Isn't it true that all of us at times have have looked up to the heavens and said, God, where are you? Are you even there? Are you even real? Why can't I feel your presence? Why can't I see your face? Why can't I know your power? Why, why do I even wonder if you exist at all at times? And let me say that that is Uh, That is a consequence of the death of separation between God and man. And sin caused that. That's that's just the way that is. The second kind of death that results is a a physical death. Um, Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man once to die and after that to face judgment. Uh, It's theologically true and it's all through the scriptures that death is a reality and it's the physical end result of sin. But theology aside, don't we all know that from experience? That no one escapes death. It is the reality of all of creation, of all of human life, of all life in general. Death comes to all of us. We see that. We know that. It's the the awfulness of disease and decay and mortality. It, It comes like the rot in an apple that eventually chokes out the life that was so wonderfully there. Let me say that death wasn't the plan. It was never God's plan. Sin did that. Sin brought that physical death. So spiritual death, separation from God, physical death, the decay of these bodies that we live in. And then finally, there is something that is called an eternal death. That comes when the first death links up with the second death. 
it's the worst equation in the world. Uh, spiritual death plus physical death equals eternal death. If we die physically while we are spiritually dead to God, then we are locked into an eternal separation from God that we refer to as hell. A forever place of separation from the holy. A forever place of separation from the wonderful, amazing, beautiful presence of God. Everything good and lovely and pure and beautiful absent. Only rot and evil and death forever. That sidebar here, let me just say that because God, when he created us, and again, you can see this in the Genesis account, he created humanity as an immortal soul. The Bible says that he breathed into man and that became, he became a living being. His life in humanity created us to be forever people. Uh, we may die physically in the body, but the soul in us lives on forever. And it's the equation above in relation to us being forever creatures that is a huge problem. Uh, it's not ended in physical death because it's not the way we've been created. So add all of that up together, and that's what, what I would call the bad news. It's really bad news. It's awful news. And if we were to end it there, it would be truly bleak. Please don't shut off the recording now. That is terrible news. It's tragic. What could we ever do but despair if that was the whole story? But let me say this, the opposite of the bad news is the good news. And the good news is, is that God did not leave us there. From the very beginning, even as Adam and Eve were choosing to turn away and to reject God's love and, and to spit in his holy face, as it were, his heart was so full of love for us that he already had a plan in mind. He already had a way in mind to make up for what was about to happen. He still has a plan in mind to deal with sin and to deal with all of that bad news. And I love that. I love the fact that God so loves us that he has not rejected us in our rebellion. He has not said, I'm done with you. That's it. That's all. He has a plan and it is the good news. Now you may already know that as you're listening to this. You may be well familiar with the good news, but if I could ask you to just listen with a fresh ear. And if you haven't heard this message before, please listen closely. One more stop back at the garden before we move forward. In the end of the story with the rebellion in Genesis 3, God hands out some punishments for what's gone on. And again, I would encourage you to study them closely. The punishments fit the crime in a very, very specific way. But there's an amazing little encounter that takes place in Genesis 3.15 where God is speaking to the serpent, the devil, the one who came and brought this temptation to Adam and Eve. And he says these amazing words in Genesis 3.15, for what you have done here in leading man and woman into rebellion and sin, there will come a time when a descendant of Eve will come onto the scene. A little spoiler alert, it's Jesus. And, and that descendant, Jesus, will, you're going to strike his heel, the Bible says, but he will crush your head. 
God's plan was in place to redeem and restore from the very beginning, and it was all about the cross. Even back in Genesis chapter 3, God's plan was in place already, and so he was going to go ahead and bring this thing, the symbol of our faith, the cross, and bring the ability to redeem us from this path of death. Uh, but you may be asking, and, and I'm an ex-cop, and so my mind goes to hows and whys and, and proofs. And even though I've said to my kids probably a thousand times, because I said so, uh, I can't live with because I said so. I need to know why. So why? How does the cross work? How can the cross turn back the impact of sin and the consequences of death in these three ways? Now, I want to say to you today with the strongest conviction that I, that I could ever have, that I know the cross works, that I know with all of my heart that it works because I've seen it work. But, but how does it work? And that's what I want to just spend a few minutes with you on now. How does the cross deal with all this bad news? Uh, the three pieces that I, I need you to put together to understand fully the good news. Number one is that God really, really loves us. Uh, the truth is that God loves us. As much as the cross is the universal symbol now of the church, I would say that the most quoted verse in all of the Bible is John 3.16. And it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in him would not perish, would not die, but would have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. He is love. He does love. Uh, he is driven and motivated by love. He does not want to see anyone lost. He does not want to see death have authority over anyone. And he's motivated because of love for that. So I hope again that lean into the scriptures, ask the questions, talk to people. But there's so many of us that could say with full conviction that God is love. And that's the first thing that I need you to get with this. The second thing I want you to get though, is the identity of Jesus. So number one, God is love. Number two, Jesus Christ is totally human and fully God all at once. That is so essential to understanding why the cross works. And, and I wish I had 12 or 24 hours to unpack this with you right now in terms of who is Jesus and why does it matter. But let me really quickly just say two things. It is, number one, absolutely essential that Jesus Christ is not only a good man and a great teacher and a prophet and a rabbi and all those good things, not only somebody who lived a perfect and sinless life, he's a thousand percent all of those things, uh, but he is also God in the flesh, fully human and fully God. Uh, the phrase that the Jews would use to best capture that idea of being God in the flesh is this idea of the Son of God. It doesn't translate as powerfully into, into our language, but to them that's what it meant. When they said that he was the Son of God, it meant that he was God in the flesh. That's what it meant. We celebrate on Christmas this idea, the advent of, of God becoming incarnate, coming into the world, born of a virgin, fully human, but divinely 
conceived. And, and so that is not just a great Christmas story, but let me just say that it's absolutely crucial to be true for the cross to do its work. For the cross to work, the one who died on it had to be not only human and sinless and perfect, but he had to be fully God as well. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked the way that it does. In the Nicene Creed, which is a historic document, uh, an early declaration of what we believe as the church, it says these words, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. That's it. Fully God incarnate into the world. Now, if you were to say to me, how, how does that work? I would say to you, that's going to be all eternity to fully understand the concept of fully God and fully man. But it's essential. And I, and I believe it with all my heart. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus was fully human and fully God? Well, here's why I believe it matters. The blood that was shed there on the cross was fully human blood, spilt from a man without sin or blemish. Jesus committed no sin ever. Pilate, as he was judging him, said, I find no guilt in this man. There's nothing to convict him. He was pure. He was absolutely without sin. His accusers could bring no accusation against him, except one charge. They said that he claimed to be not just a man, but he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to be the great I Am. You see, the blood that pooled at the foot of the cross was fully human, but it was also fully divine. It was human, finite, contained in time and space, but it was divine blood, eternal, omnipresent. It was somehow the blood of man, and the blood of a holy God that was spilled there and pooling at the foot of the cross. I don't understand that fully. I have to say that again. But I know I need that. I know I need Jesus to be who he claimed to be. In his perfect sinless humanity, his death is able to be there in my place, in place of my blood. He is the perfect sacrifice. I don't now need to die. But in its divinity, his blood is a once and forever sacrifice. It is one and done forever, the book of Hebrews tells us. Take away his deity and the cross has no eternal power. But with its deity, it is a sacrifice that is for all and for all time. I'm not going to unpack too deeply right now the, the details of the cross but I do want to just read it for you quickly. Uh, reading it, it's found in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, it is the crux. There you go. Crux means in the, the Latin, the, it's, the, it's the, the cross is what the word means. So the crux of everything is, is the crucifixion. And so let me just read really quickly Matthew 15, 20, 22 to 39, just to set the stage for the, the last act of this message. 
It says in beginning in verse 22, and they brought him, Jesus, to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him reviled him also. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This afternoon, I'm not going to go verse by verse through that again. I wish we had time to do that, but but please take the time to, to lean into the stories from all the Gospels. Watch the passion of the Christ. Just, just immerse yourself in the reality of, of what happened on that day. But let me just say a couple of short points really quickly. Number one, the Romans did death better than anybody they made it hurt and they made it awful for as long as possible. But in the end, they knew how to make sure that it stuck. There was and is not a more painful death that a person can die than on a Roman cross. Again, to have a month of Sundays to unpack it. But but just know this, according to Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before the cross, it says that he was bruised for our iniquities and he sure was bruised. He was pierced for our sins, and we have heard of the nails, and by his stripes we are healed. They're written by Isaiah chapter 53, like I said, 700 years before the cross. God, the righteous and holy judge, is, is, is able to pour out all of the consequences of sin, all the death that it inevitably demands upon the Son of God on the cross, upon his dearly beloved Son, so that all justice is satisfied there. Jesus experienced in that place that spiritual death that I mentioned. That when he cries out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Know this, the one who had never for a single moment known anything but perfect intimacy with God the Father now tastes fully what it means to be totally cut off uh, because of sin, not his sin, but my sin and yours. My brain can't fully grasp what that would feel like, but I do know the closer you are to someone, 
the more intimate you are with someone, the more separation hurts. So what Jesus experienced in those moments of being cut off from the Father when he turned his face away, that, that was the full weight and consequence of spiritual death that sin brings. And Jesus took it for all who would believe. He did so in order to take the penalty away from us. The one who had never known anything but perfect intimacy now knew the pain of separation and the darkness that it felt like, and he did it so we don't have to. That debt, because of the cross, is paid in full. What about the physical death I mentioned? The Bible states that somewhere in the time between death and the resurrection, according to Ephesians chapter 4, that Jesus descended into hell, it says. And when he was there, he declared his victory over death and over hell. And I love the picture. He snatched the keys, it said, to death and to hell, and he left with them. So the devil no longer has control over death. Uh, and the book of Revelation says at the very end of the Bible that in the very end of time, Jesus will destroy even death itself. Death no longer has mastery over us. We no longer have to fear death physically. Uh, that debt's been paid fully too because of the cross. There's one day coming where that will not be a consequence anymore. But even now in Christ, we no longer have to fear death because of what Jesus did on the cross. And lastly, and most importantly of all, because Jesus took our consequences, there is no need for us to ever fear eternal separation from God. The best image that I've ever heard this, I don't know who said it, but I'll steal it unapologetically. Imagine this, the judge is sitting on the bench. The judge has looked at you or looked at me. He's seen the case brought against us. He's seen the list of all of our failures and rebellions and sins. He's seen every evil deed that we've ever done, every unholy thought we've ever had, every evil intention, all recorded, all brought before the judge. And as that list is held up against the standard of God's holy perfection, the sentence of death is inevitably read to be paid out over all of eternity. And how does the court find? Guilty. And what is the sentence? Death, unavoidably. But just as the sentence is about to be handed down, the judge stands up from his bench. He takes off his, his judgely robes. He comes down around next to the accused, me or you, and he stands in between the bench and us, and he says, I will pay it all. I will cover the entire cost. He's innocent. I take his guilt. She is forgiven. I take the consequences forever and for always, never to be paid by any that would let him pay it. That is the work of the cross. So lastly, eternal death, that debt paid in full as well. There is no death left because of the cross. There is now, the Bible says, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, none. So as I said in the beginning, the symbol of our life between here and eternity is the cross, where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, saved us both forever and for here and now.
So my question of you today is simple. Would you commit to life in the shadow of the cross every day? It's not an ugly thing to those who would accept it. It's no longer that horrible, awful symbol that it was. It's instead the greatest symbol of love ever given. Would you live your life in its glorious, powerful shadow every day? Best I can figure, there are two groups of people who are listening to this message today. And I want to speak to both of you quickly and offer a prayer fit for each of you. For the one who has never believed this message before, the invitation is clear. Come to the foot of the cross. Lay down your striving. Lay down your good works and all of your best efforts and accept the free gift of salvation that is offered to you. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when you come, the result is this. A new birth. A brand new life born in you. You get to be reunited with God. The God who seems so far away will come close and longs to be closer and closer and closer every day. Uh, the curtain that separated you from him, the Bible tells us in one of the accounts of the cross, is torn from top to bottom. There is no longer a reason to be separate from God. The fear and the worry and, and, the, and the anxiety around death can all be gone forever because your inheritance is forever in the presence of this loving and holy God. But the only way to receive the free gift of salvation so perfectly accomplished for you is to surrender yourself to it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, someone penned. I trade my life now, God, for yours. I surrender and I come to the cross. And for those of us who in this place have trusted in the cross of Christ already, my invitation to you is this, cease striving and learn more fully to live in the salvation that is already yours. All that would separate from God and you has been removed. All that would entangle you has been dealt with. In Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen if you would only fully lean on the cross. Let me say, it's not where your faith began and you move on from it. It's where our faith begins and ends and every step in between. The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. I died daily at the cross with Christ and yet I live because his life flows into me. I invite you to come to the cross, to stay at the cross, to live every single day in light of the cross. It's the symbol of life both now and forever. So what I wanna do now is, is lead you in a couple of prayers. Uh, a prayer for those of you who have never come to the cross before.
or maybe you came a long time ago and you've wandered far away from it, I want to lead you in a prayer. Uh, I understand that you're going to be able to to click and and virtually put your hand up if you're responding to this message and and just please know how precious that is uh, to us and the goal is that we would be able to follow up with you and help you on this journey as you start out. Uh, but I'd like to lead you in a prayer uh, first and then after that I want to lead the second group in a prayer, uh, more of a prayer of surrender. So would you pray with me now? Loving Heavenly Father, I am separate from you because of my sin and my guilt. I know that I have resisted your love and have rejected your grace. But today I see the cross. Jesus, I see that you died in my place. You took all my sins and all my guilt and all of my shame, and I don't have to carry them anymore. I accept your death in my place, and I ask for your grace. I open my heart to your love and ask for you to make me brand new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, and I will follow you from now on and forever. Amen. And so if you prayed that prayer, please reach out, whether it's virtually uh, through the chat or, or in some other way, please reach out uh, and make connection with others who are already walking with Christ, others who are making the bottom sign of the fish, make that top sign back. And so make that connection if you would. But let me lead that other group as well. If, if you are already a follower of Christ and maybe, maybe it's just struggle and striving and, and just not that sense of that unforced rhythm of grace that you really long for with Christ. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so let me invite you to pray with me now as well. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you did it all. Jesus, you said on the cross, it is finished. And so we choose to accept it now. We believe it. And today we choose to live like it. Let us live more fully in light of the cross. Let us walk as freed, forgiven, filled, and dearly loved children of the King. Let us walk boldly into the world knowing who we are, and how totally free we are to run and dance and to share this good news with others that we meet. Fill us up fresh and keep us coming back to the foot of your cross daily. May we never, ever, ever lose touch with how much you did to save us. We love you and want to thank you and know you more and more. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And so if you in that second group have prayed that prayer, let me encourage you to, to connect. The, the Christian faith, the following of Jesus is not a solo act. It needs to be done in community. And so if it is your desire to live that kind of 
full and, and free life in Christ, please link up together, whether that's with us or with some other group of, of followers of Christ, but please connect so that, so that you can continue to walk forward in this. Uh, let me st- close stealing the words of the famous sermon by Tony Campolo. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And so I encourage you to stay tuned for the other half of this story. Uh, but God bless you and, and, and just go forth and live fully in light of the cross. God loves you. Amen.